Hello everybody, welcome back to PodBN. We are excited to bring you today our first conversation with a mayoral candidate. It's Mayor Chris Coos running for re-election in Normal. Had a really fun time talking to him about his experience and uh, he's just really wanting you guys to all go out and vote on April 6th. So take it from Chris, go out and vote. Before that, we bring you that, I want to thank Lil Beaver Brewery. So Lil Beaver has an awesome patio that they've just made, and it's forming up to the point where they just might be able to open that thing up. So if it is March when you're listening to this, I definitely suggest you go over, check out their outdoor patio. Great option to be able to enjoy some community with, uh, they have some warming devices out there. they got an outside bar area, so you don't have to go in. Check them out on lilbeaverbrewery.com to see when that's opened up. And then go visit them in person at 5 Finance Drive. And now Chris Coos running for Normal Town Mayor. Hello. Uh, okay, so I feel like I'm, I'm conflicted here. I feel like I should somewhat call you Mayor Coos, but I'm going to call you Chris. So I'm going to go ahead and just call yeah. you Chris if that's okay. So. Chris gets my attention. All right. Um, thanks for coming in and chatting with us today, Chris. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So my first question, go ahead and just throw a softball out at you. You've been mayor since 2003, um, and uh, you're still wanting to give it another four years here. So what were the considerations that brought you to seeking re-election again? You know, I, I think uh, the fact that there's some things that I, I might consider unfinished business that uh, I'm still vitally interested in. Um, and I still have a lot of passion for the community. I really believe in this community. Uh, I've been a person that's uh, volunteered in the community pretty much my entire adult life uh, to make the community a better place. And, and I ha- kind of have a, a mantra that I developed, which says <clears throat> that you don't just live in great communities. You help to make great communities. And when you go to some place that you think uh, a city or a community that's special, the reason it is is because people in that community did the, the heavy lifting and the hard work to make it that way. They just don't naturally occur, occur and it takes work. And that's kind of been the, the passion that's kept me on the job these 18 years. So uh, let's talk about the unfinished business a little bit. Um, what kind of things are you thinking of there? Well, I think um, um, some of the work around Uptown 2.0, uh, I'm, I'm really kind of focused on that a little bit because I think there's real opportunity there. Uh, you know, we're talking about at some point if we can raise enough money, uh, a new library there, uh, some residential properties in that area that are oriented towards non-student multifamily that are more affordable for the community. Uh, we think that's a that's a big issue, and uh, economic development issues and getting getting post COVID uh, those kind of uh, move in parallel um, with Rivian coming in and the likelihood that we're going to get more tertiary businesses around that industry. Uh, it seems seems fairly likely that that's going to happen. Um, I think my experience in economic development will will, play, will pay off in that, and and the COVID post COVID economy is something um, in terms of 
The public sector, you know, we've taken a pretty hard hit on revenues. We've had to cut some programs. We uh, laid some people off, not many. Uh, we've reduced about 30 jobs in, in the town. And a lot of those were uh, jobs that were retirees and we just aren't filling them right away uh, so we can manage our economy better. And so I think my experience um, as mayor can help with that. So I'm, I'm pretty invested in, in going forward in the next four years. Chris, you, you mentioned uh, economic development and, and mentioned Rivian as well. Uh, clearly, that's that's something a couple of years ago there were a lot of questions about or maybe some skeptics out there, right? And I think some of the skeptics are being won over. Now you're starting to see things are really moving. It, it appears that uh, even more so here in the next next 12 months could really take off. Uh, what what are you hearing from Rivian? Where's where's that path trajectory go? And then after they get up and producing, uh, kind of what's next for, for them? You, you mentioned tertiary businesses and what, but where do you see that next 12 months, 24 months with Rivian specifically? Well, you know, I think uh, a lot of people are focused on the vehicles that they're producing and, and those are um, some home run vehicles, by the way, they get very, very good press. Uh, the delivery trucks for Amazon uh, is also a big deal for them. But if you talk to RJ Scaringe and some of the people that started that company, they think overall battery technology is, is really where the, the plant's going to stand out. Uh, uh, people don't realize that uh, probably the most unique thing about uh, Rivian is the uh, the software and hardware they have developed to manage battery usage and battery life, battery cooling, which is an important important issue. Uh, very proprietary technology that they're developing, and they they see it having a broader uh, a use in 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 uh, say home battery storage, uh, things like that. An interesting fact about car batteries uh, in an electric car is when that battery is no longer uh, strong enough or powerful enough to um, to run your automobile, it still has a lot of useful life as a storage uh, battery. And so it can be repurposed for home storage, things like that. Um, and, and the battery array is powerful enough um, that they've kind of shown that with the right wiring in your household, if you had a power outage like we had uh, last month, you could plug your house into your car and run your house for a day and a half or two days. I'm so I've actually been I've been seeing the uh, on Facebook some of the you know Texas uh, individuals that were using their Ford F one fifty trucks and, and doing exactly that powering their house. So yeah, yeah, I guess we needed more Rivians in Texas than than they would have been okay, right? No, we'll keep them right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can make them here and sell them in Texas, send them down there. That I like. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so so, so it sounds some... like... Go ahead, Jeremy. It, it sounds like not only do you have the car piece, um, you know, that, that maybe it could be a, a bit of a Mitsubishi replacement, clearly, but it sounds like there's a, a, a couple other cottage industries that, that could come out of Rivian. That, that's where you think there could be some additional economic impact development. Well, you know, when we were working with Mitsubishi, when they were when they were going along, we worked with a group called uh, Center for Automotive Research, which was kind of a think tank in the automotive industry. And uh, they did a lot of research on uh, the economics of uh, automobile manufacturing and came up with the 
uh, findings that for every primary automotive job there is, uh, it will generate uh, 10 other jobs within the region, not within the town or within the county, but within the region. And those jobs, uh, a lot of those jobs are from suppliers, uh, logistics, uh, you know, just the fact that there are more people and there's more act action in the economy. So you end up having more restaurants and, and things like that. So it's, it's a very much a powerful uh, generator for, for jobs in a community. So I think you're going to see that. And when, when Mitsubishi was going pretty strong, you know, you had four or five major suppliers who either uh, located warehousing or a logistics center nearby, or actually did their manufacturing uh, nearby because of the just-in-time just uh, delivery systems that they relied on to, to keep the automotive output. So the, uh, the story of Rivian is interesting. It's a uh, story of how they came here. Um, it's been a few years now since that happened. And, I'm curious of what that story was to you, um, having sure. lived through that whole experience. So, well, we um, we met with R.J. Scringe and two other people when they first came to the community, and they scheduled a meeting with uh, Mark Peterson and myself to talk about what who they were and what they were doing. Mark, Mark Peterson was the city manager at the time, right? Former for those city who don't manager. Know. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it was a compelling story that they were telling, but I'm sure they were looking across the room at us going, you know, here we are in a little Midwestern town with a dead auto plant. We're looking across the room and saying, who are these guys? I mean, is this real? Is, it, is this something that's real? Um, so uh, it turned out we did a little investigating on them, and I'm sure they did some investigating on the community. In fact, I've got a story about that later. Um and uh, we found out they, they had the financing they said they had, and they were the real deal. Uh, at that time, though, we, we still knew it was a very, very risky proposition to start up a, a new car company in, in the Midwestern United States. Rivian actually first came to normal to look at an auction that was going to happen at the plant for equipment. They wanted to see if there was viable equipment. And when they came to uh, do an auction inventory to see what was there, they were just stunned at how modern and how well-kept the Mitsubishi plant was. And they said, hey, there's something here. And they called back to Detroit and got uh, RJ and some other people to come down and look. And that kind of started the process. Um, RJ tells a story that... Uh, one of their major investors, they went to one of their major investors and said, we need to buy this car plant in normal Illinois. And the investor said, no, no, we're, we're building cars in Detroit. We're not building cars in central Illinois. And they convinced him to come down. They, they said, you know, there's something unusual about this community. It's, it's got some spark to it. And it's, it's kind of a cool place. And so he came down clandestinely and spent a day and a half in the community just kind of wandering around and talking to people and went back to Detroit and said, no, we need to buy this plant. This is the right 
the right plant in the right location. So then the next steps on that, um, well, sorry, definitely makes me proud as part of the community that someone would feel that way. And uh, also as someone who moved to the community, I can, I can understand where that comes from. Um, so the, then the next step was some negotiating, right? And that's always when you get into some both practical and philosophical issues about the degree to which the, the town should try to incent that. So um, I know there's probably some behind the scenes deals that you can't, I mean, some wheeling and dealing that's not, it's probably too in the weeds, but uh, overall there was a package presented. Um, could you talk a little bit about the highlights of that? And then, you know, looking back now was, was, did that strike the right balance in your opinion? Yeah, it, it was, uh, it was something that we knew they needed. Uh, and uh, we also knew that in, in the state of Illinois, there weren't many incentives coming, coming out of state government. There were some tax credit uh, edge grants is what they called. Them. Um, but in terms of uh, the, the money that Mitsubishi was given to locate the plant here, uh, those opportunities didn't exist for Rivian in, in the state of Illinois. So we uh, worked with the county and Unit 5, you know, all the taxing districts that were touched by that facility out there to come up with a five-year plan, which would be property tax rebates and a million-dollar grant. Uh, and those rebates um, were evaluated every year and were, were tired, uh, I'm sorry, were tied uh, to, um, oh, deliverables. In other words, so many people had to be hired. They had to be so much money invested into the plant or you didn't get that year's tax break. And Rivian was able to do that, uh, except for one year. One year they missed and that had to do with procurement and supply chain. Uh, and they paid their property taxes for that year. And at the end of the five years, the million dollar grant that, that we had pledged is just kind of a sweetener for it. Rivian had done so well in the investment, uh, getting private investment, excuse me, uh, that they forgave it. They said, you know, we don't need the million dollars. We, we thought we might have, but we don't need it. So they, they forgave that part of the uh, um, incentive agreement. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, pretty, uh, seems like pretty successful at achieving the goal, right? Exceeded expectations. In that regard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, okay. and Rivian is a company that is very community oriented. Um, it, uh, they really do care about the community that they're in and, and, and they will tell you uh, just because they were able to get a, a, a modern car plant at a fire sale. There was a lot more to it than that. And, you know, they, they cared about the community they were going to be in. They wanted that community's uh, values to align with theirs, and, and they felt that that all happened. So then looking more broadly outside of Rivian, then that's one success of a certain type of economic development activity. Um, you said that was one of your bigger um, things that you wanted to see through, especially post-COVID. Um, so could you talk a little bit about, like, is that the type of, are you looking for more activities of that type where we're trying to find companies to come in here and locate here, providing appropriate incentives? Um, or is that 
sort of, is that one option amongst many? What, what does economic development mean to you? You know, economic de- development is multifaceted. Uh, uh, one of the, um, say, one of the elements of it, let's take the uh, Trailside East project, uh, which kind of got put on hold by COVID a little bit, but it's, it's ramping up again. Uh, you've got two office users um, that are the major tenants in that building. One is AFNI and the other is uh, Farnsworth Group. And both of those companies um, look to putting their headquarters in that building. And the reason they want to do that is because in their current locations, AFNI is on Brock Drive out by uh, West Market Street and, and uh Farnsworth is in McGraw Drive, and they were both finding that to get new young talent to come to work for them out of the area, um, they didn't particularly want to work in the environments that they had. They liked the company, and they liked the company's values, but they didn't like the work environment. And so that's their reason for doing that, and and um, they're trying to grow their headquarters here. Both both companies are. So that's, that's a, another reason. Uh, type of economic development. We've got the Phoenix project uh, out on uh, North Main Street, which was the old Wildwood building, a huge uh, logistics center that sat empty for close to 10 years, uh, half finished. And uh, it's a half a million square feet. Um, uh, A company bought that and has finished it off. And instantly the Rivian uh, took the whole 500,000 square feet uh, for rental space for, for their operations. And it caused uh, Phoenix to build another, to start building another half million square feet on that, on that property. So we're going to see some expansion in logistics. Um, working with the Economic Development Council, we're really being aggressive about uh, showing, showcasing our community and showing people you know, how, how we have these success stories in the community and how they've worked and that they should give a good hard look to us. Now, there's, there's a, a downside of this in that it's put tremendous pressure on our workforce. Um, it, uh, people are concerned that there just aren't enough people here uh, to uh, to fill these jobs. And so there's educational efforts going on with uh, K through 12. Um, Heartland Community College is doing a specific um, two-year uh, degree programs and, and certification programs to get uh, Rivian, the technical workers, the 21st century workers that they need um, to run that plant. And, and so you can see that there's a lot of pieces that fit together to make this work. Chris, I, I know you brought up the uh, Trails East, and, and that was a topic, kind of the whole downtown, uh, or, or sorry, Uptown 1.0, Uptown 2.0. I wanted to hit on a little bit pieces of both those. Um, with the Trails East project specifically, um, I mean, it, obviously a lot of controversy around the mural, uh, and the, mm-hmm. the movement of that, of that in the past. Um, and, and there's been some other criticism um, you know, the, the comment being made of, uh, while it's great that Farnsworth, AFNI are coming there, that that's really within our own community um, um, coming together, not as much people outside coming in. Um, what, what's your answer to, to those sort of comments about, um, 
you know, you shouldn't be using incentives for that more. It should be attracting a Rivian, those sort of things. Or do you think there is a place for incentives or, or helping out uh, specifically in Uptown 1.0 or Uptown 2.0? Yeah. Uh, the incentives are such a case by case issue. Uh, we're working uh, with the Economic Development Council, City of Bloomington, County of McLean, to put together like what you'd call a standardized package of incentives for a prospective new business or for a local business who wants to expand and grow. And those incentives can be uh, minority uh, ownership, minority hires. They can be uh, uh, a certain percentage over the median income uh, of the jobs that you're producing. In other words, there's got to be economic activity that benefits the community as a whole for us to get involved in incentives. Now, the incentives, again, it just depends on the nature and the size of the project. They could be pretty pretty minor or they could be pretty major, depending on, on what they're bringing to the table and what, what it brings into our community. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, but then you're also looking at, uh, it, does, does the incentive change if, if it's a, you know, somebody across the street in Bloomington, for example, or so that we're, you know, both cities are city and town are going back and forth and cannibalizing. I, I know mm-hmm. that's a criticism we hear sometimes, too. So uh, walk me through your thinking on that and, and where you think we should be in, in regards so, to that. You know, there really isn't any um, uh, competition for um, for jobs that are or for new businesses that are non-retail. Let me call it that. Because if, if company X comes to town and they bring 500 employees in and generate $100 million of business, if that's in Bloomington or normal, the entire community benefits from that. It's not just one community lands it. Now, retail is a different animal, and we do compete on retail uh, because, you know, the sales taxes go to the community in which it's uh, uh, situated in. But... In a broader sense, economic development uh, benefits the community, the county as a whole, not just one city or the other. Appreciate that. The the other piece I wanted to touch on Uptown 1.0 was the, the issue around the uh, open open first floor of, of the mm-hmm. building that's up there. Um, obviously, you've, you've heard a lot in your time and, and you, you've experienced it all the way from, uh, you know, taking the what was there and changing it to then the hole that sat there for a while to then the building and now um, you know, par- partially used, uh, partially in use building. Um, where are we at on filling that 1.0? Uh, what approaches are you guys taking it? And some of the criticism you're hearing is that we need to open our thinking a little more and, and look at different options. Where are you at on that? Uh, we're open to the multi uses. You know, we want we want it to be an active space, not a passive space. I think that's probably our. Uh, only strong criteria right now. It's really what the developer wants to do, the owner of the building. Um, you know, frankly, his his concept of a restaurant um, was part of his financing package because he we had negotiated uh, uh, some uh, waiver or some return of uh, food and beverage taxes and that. And he's not getting those dollars because there's nothing there. Um, and I think he still wants to do a restaurant, not as big as he wanted to, because, you know, that world changed from the right. time he Especially built that with, building. And Especially with COVID. Yeah, COVID. And actually, the restaurant industry nationwide was kind of in a bubble. There were just too many. Uh, there, I'd read some pretty good articles about the fact that 
there were just there were too many restaurants fighting for uh, 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 the the piece of the pie there, and so things were changing. You were seeing high end restaurants closing and and people opening more economical restaurants, things like that. So if a if a non restaurant like a shop or something wanted to come in there, that was an active space to use your term. Uh, then then you and the council would be open to pursuing that sort of business. Yeah, really. We we wanted a restaurant initially in our redevelopment agreement, uh, and I think the the developers still would like to do something like that. You know, and part of our reasoning for that is we might have three to four hundred office workers all of a sudden on a daily basis in the streets and we'll need more restaurants if that's the case. Uh, but if they came to us and said, you know, Apple wants to put a uh, small Apple store in uptown normal, you'd be heck yes. Let's, let's get going. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're very much open uh, to getting that space. We just don't want it to be a passive space, which would be like a ground floor office. Because it takes away from history life. Hopefully Tim Cook's listening to the podcast later and will give us a call. Put the Apple store there. <laughs> right. What um what's the so I'm on the Bloomington Planning Commission, so I, I get mm-hmm. into zoning stuff a little bit. So what is the current um like what's the current zoning of that and in, in terms of like what could that space be used for by right versus what do they have to come to to the city to the town for? Um, it's uh, it's B1 business, so it, it can be any business. Okay. There's really no zoning issue in terms, of, you know, it would have to be, if, if they wanted to make it uh, apartments, that would be a change of use. Okay. That. So, because when you, I was thinking when you said that they, if they came to us and said we wanted to make a store there, but they don't need the town's permission to make a store there, right? If, if they wanted Only to. Only in the sense that we'd have to modify our redevelopment agreement with them because we did specify that it was going to be a restaurant by agreement. Okay. But um, that would be the only thing because of the way the uh, redevelopment agreement was written with them, we'd have to modify that. But so I think it's probably more accurate to say if they came to us with something other than a restaurant, we, and you know, it was an active space. We'd, we'd just modify the agreement and go, yes, let's get that done. So it's that degree, that's that agreement that's restricting the use, not the, right. the zoning. Exactly. Of it. So okay, okay, gotcha. Cool. Um, well, if we could stay on uptown for a little bit, and um, I know there's a temptation to spend too much time talking about uptown because it, they're you know normal is much more than that. But on the other hand, it is something that draws a lot of attention and is sort of the the. Um, it's interesting to delve into from different aspects. So mm-hmm. something that um, as someone who doesn't live in normal, something I, I think about is the, the debt situation, um, the, the debt that was taken out in order to fund it and thinking through of how that, what revenue source would then repay that debt and also make sure that we have, sufficient money whenever maintenance comes due on these public buildings too, to try to be ready for, um, you know, roofs and things starting to degrade over a period of years. So um, how do you see that sort of playing out? Like, how does that, how does that debt get paid down from the benefit that that provides? So, you know, we're probably looking at about $95 million of uh, uh, borrowing that we did 
And that was for investment. And, you know, people, people call it debt. We call it an investment because it generated $172 million approximately, give or take. Uh, uh, $172 million of private development. So we're almost, a, you know, two for one in terms of the money we've invested in Uptown. Now, $14 million of that, of that bonded debt went to major infrastructure and street realignment. Um, we were looking at, a, at an area that had sewer and water uh, service that was 100 years old. And we thought, rightfully so, that if we were going to do a major overhaul of that area, we need to fix what's under the ground as well as what's on top of the ground. So th that's part of it. And we have a debt structured plan uh, that manages cash very well. Uh, we uh, were well within our uh, uh, reasonable debt limits. We're under our, uh, our, what we would consider a debt limit. And uh, we have the highest possible credit rating a municipality can get. And they look at our, our debt and they look at our our reserve funds and things like that. They take all that into account. They look at the management of the city. They look at the, um, the policy making of the council and they like what they see and we've got the highest credit rating. So it, it is not a problem. So I, the I 172 million of private development, that's for example, like the building we were just talking about that was built with private funds. So that's right. That's how you're determining that. So, okay. Uh, Marriott was built with private funds, this building that CBS is in. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's a tremendous amount of private development down there. Yeah. I think that is an important distinction because um, I came here as an ISU student. Um, I think Jeremy and I might both have ISU shirts on it right now, actually. So we're representing. Um, <laughs> I, I came here I as a <laughs> <laughs> I came here as an ISU student in 2003, and so I was I saw pre and post these major initiatives, and there are there's it's much improved visually in, in a lot of aspects. And uh, walking down the street, you can't see which one was private and which one was public. So I think that's very fair for people to take into account. I'm yeah, glad you well, pointed that out. So the so the dollars went for land acquisition, that went for in infrastructure, it went to. Uh, incentives um, to help get the projects out of the ground, but they're primarily all private projects. The yeah. only public project would be Uptown Station, and that was built with primarily with uh, federal grant dollars. Okay. And then, then Chris, I, I know one of the issues, staying on this just real quick, one of the issues that's come up in the campaign is uh, appropriate use of debt or future debt. Um, are you looking at more the, hey, let's, let's start paying the debt off and go towards zero, kind of maintain where we're at or are we looking at there's other projects we want to you know we might need to increase the the debt or invest a little bit more money to to finish this off with the 2.0 where, where's your thoughts well you know i, I the debt's got to be managed there's no question about that and it's it's not a whole lot different than what you do with your own small business or with your home uh your home debt i mean uh People don't save enough money to buy a car and buy a house and then wait till they got that money saved up to do that. So you, you want to, we want to pay down our debt. We want to get it lower. There's no question of that. Um, but at the same time, if there's an opportunity that comes along that requires borrowing, 
um, uh, we want to be in that position to do that. And that would have to be a major project. Uptown was a major project. Mm-hmm. And that's why we borrowed money on it. Um, we're pretty much pay as you go on everything else. But I, I think the notion that a, a large organization has to be debt free all the time um, saddles that organization with the inability to take advantage of opportunities that might come along. Um, one more question on that. Uh, so the, the, the infrastructure improvements in, in normal, I don't, I don't think there's any disagreement that those were necessary. Right. Um, and those also facilitate the, the growth that we talk about because CVS um, my guess was the CVS couldn't have worked with the existing infrastructure to power everything they need to run all of the stuff that's uh, required for a pharmacy and refrigerated units and stuff like that. So, um, you know, we've got, there was infrastructure that needed to be invested in there. There's lots around the the town too, lots of roads that need to be um, improved upon. So why, why in your view, is debt necessary to to pay for that? No, what should have been a known expense, right? You build something and then you need to eventually pay to fix it, right? Why isn't the money available to fix these things from the the revenue sources that we have, or from some kind of uh, fund that's been built up over time? Uh, I think I know what you're asking here, but so if my I can rephrase it if you want, but yeah. You know, if my question goes awry, bring, wheel, me, reel me back in. But because the it was functioning, um, you know, we were doing it piecemeal. You know, if there was a sewer break, we'd fix a sewer break um, in the area. Uh, but as you said, there were there were power needs and and uh, getting fiber into the uptown was a, a very important thing for, for business users there. Um, and again, we were, we were tearing everything out, tearing all the streets out. And, and our thinking was, you've got 100-year-old infrastructure there. You're tearing streets out. You're going to put all brand new streets, curbs, you're realigning. Why would you leave that old infrastructure in there? Because you're going to be tearing it up, mm-hmm. fixing it. So that's, that was our reason for doing that. Yeah, I guess my reason is broader. Um, I guess I can just say it really simply. Why isn't there enough money to pay for our infrastructure needs? Why isn't the cash flow available to readily fund all of our existing infrastructure needs, in your view? Well, you know, we do have a plan, yearly plan. Um, When we update our five-year budget and our capital improvement plan, we plan out the next five years. our infrastructure will never be 100% repaired because it's it's an ongoing process. Things wear out. You know, we're replacing water mains that were put in in the 1970s. Um, stuff wears out. So it's it's an ongoing battle. And, and we fund uh, uh, as much as we possibly can. We're, you know, we don't have a bottomless pit of, of funding to do these projects. But, for instance... Oh, since 2012, we've spent almost $100 million in infrastructure in our community. And the next 10 to 12 years, we'll be doing the same, if not more. 
Uh, I can tell you our street improvements. You know, we were doing, oh, where are we at? Say uh, we were doing about a million dollars a year in 2013, 2014, and we're projecting for uh, 21, 22, uh, about $4.6 million. Uh, and that's just on roads. That's not total infrastructure. So we, we are uh, trying to do more as we have the dollars to do it, but it's all about budget. Okay. We're like, uh, we're, we normally do about halfway through a lightning round. So uh, we're like two thirds of the way through. We're going to have to do the lightning, lightning round. Um, uh -oh. Just, just, <laughs> just going to throw out a bunch of terms. Want to get the first thing that pops to your mind, you know, just a couple words, um, quick hitter, and then we can never, jump into never, some of these if we have time. I always tell people never sneak up on an old man with a question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the first question we've talked about quite a bit, but uh, first, first words that come to your mind uh, when I say uptown. Uptown, I would say um, it's a magnet. It's a vibrant. It's a, it's a place. Okay. Uh, connect Transit. Connect Transit is uh, adding another and increasing another mode of transit for uh, dependent riders and user uh, uh, choice riders. Okay, Illinois State. Uh, foundational to the town of Normal. Normal wouldn't exist without Illinois State University. Sports Complex. Sports Complex is uh, still a concept, although it's moving forward. You might have something to do with that. Uh, yeah, the, the, we'll, we'll get into that later, maybe. Uh, Constitution Trail. Constitution Trail, uh, Bloomington Normal's uh, favorite park. Um, urban Sprawl. Urban Sprawl is uh, our enemy, and for the last 20 years, we have fought against Urban Sprawl. And we'll end lighting around where we began the questioning with economic development. Economic development, lifeblood of our community, and the future of our community. Okay. Um, of course, it wouldn't be a 2021 conversation without talking about COVID a little bit. So um, I guess I'll just open it up for like what comes to mind with you on, for how things have been for the last year, what, what your role as mayor has been, and then what you, if you're reelected, what would you like to, what would you plan to do to try to help alleviate the impact that's had on the community? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of questions in there that you just brought up, Tyson. Uh, go wherever you want to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I usually start this conversation with, uh, the, with the statement that, you know, when you're uh, in, in political office and, and a mayor, a lot of times 50% of the public is mad at you for one reason or another. In a COVID world, 100% of people are mad at you um, <laughs> because there's so many different strong views on, on what we do in a COVID world and we, how we get out of it. And, you know, there's one end of it. It's like quit closing or quit restricting businesses, quit wearing masks and, uh, the other side of that is, you know, there are people in this building and they're not wearing their masks. What are you going to do about it? So it's, it's that kind of environment. Now, I've done some reading on this. Uh, um, 
history of the Spanish flu in 1918, these very same kind of uh, conflicts existed then. And doing some further reading, every time in uh, civilization that there's been a, a major epidemic like this, you've gotten these extremes of thought and, and uh, a disruption in, in people's day-to-day -day lives, and it's really changed their lives. So, you know, we've got a lot to learn from the past on how to, how to move forward with this, uh, getting people vaccinated, getting that done, helping the businesses that uh, that were mostly affected by it. You know, it, it's who would have thought my personal business, I never saw it coming. I actually did better because people wanted to ride bicycles and, and we'd had this huge bicycle craze that just popped up out of nowhere. Um, you know, at the end of May, if you walked in my store, you'd think I'd I had gone out of business and was just cleaning it up because there was nothing there. Uh, but, you know, restaurants were hit very hard, health clubs, uh, hair care, places like that. Um, so helping them as much as we can, we uh, were able to uh, leverage $450,000 from the state of Illinois to, to give business grants to smaller businesses. And we were really looking at the smaller businesses that were, that were hurt, uh, giving them grants and also uh, partnering with Illinois State University um, to help these businesses to develop digital marketing uh, platforms and programs to, to help them get out of a, a, a COVID economy. Um, we also uh, took our community block grant dollars and we put it to um, rent relief, helping people that were um, underemployed or unemployed as a result of COVID and couldn't pay their rent. Uh, we were helping with rent relief. We we're getting another round of uh, uh, dollars from the federal government and we're pointing it at that direction. So I think, you know, that's government's role in, in that regard to, to assist where we can. You know, we're not going to solve the problem. Uh, but really, really trying to get, we have to get our own uh, revenue and economy back in stride for the, for the town itself. And, and the way to do that is to have a, a economically healthy community and a physically healthy community. Chris, curious, uh, you, you said uh, government role, you know, kind of help out and do that. I, I want to focus a little bit on some of the, I guess, enforcement or some of the, um, you know, you talked about some of the business uh, where people's calling and say, what are you going to do? Or, or actions you took that people said, why did you do that? Um, where do you think it is, it, where, where is the town's role here? Um, and when it comes to enforcement, uh, you know, going through liquor commission, going through some of the other things uh, versus you'll hear critics say, well, normal shouldn't be involved in that. It should be the health department or, or you know, McLean County Health Department doing that. Where, where do you see those lines of what's, what's the role of the town? What's the role of the health department when it comes to enforcement? That, that, that was a very difficult uh, path to navigate, Jeremy, because there wasn't a lot of clear direction. Um, the governor always said, Here, here's the law, and the law has been upheld by the courts, and it's up to the communities to enforce it. We're not enforcing it. Uh, so, and there, I don't think there was clear enough direction from the state on what to do uh, because they were pointed to the health department 
you know, they're saying that's a health issue because of COVID. Well, the health department didn't have the regulations to do, um, to do the one or two things that we did. So we had executive orders uh, that were later turned into ordinances. Uh, uh, for instance, when ISU students came back and we had that huge spike in positivity, um, kind of cracking down on outdoor mass gatherings. Um, that was something that was kind of specific to normal and we had to do, uh, and it helped, you know, and a lot of people were angry about that, that we, we did that, but I think there's still a lot of students that are mad at me for doing that. Um, but we needed to do something because of the positivity rate, you know, it was just, gonna, it was, it was, it was bad and it was climbing and we had to do something about it. And that was one of the things we could do in terms of, um, uh, um, the governor's orders on restaurants, um, the health department, again, had no authority uh, to go in and enforce based on the, the, the regulations and um, the uh, powers that they were given by the county government and the state government. They, were, they could go in and, and, and enforce cleanliness and, and certain things, but COVID, there just wasn't there. Um, because, you know, because um, we have broader powers uh, uh, under liquor lock licensing and laws, there, there's a broader definition of what you can do with that. Uh, that's the one reason we were able to do that in Bloomington and really cities all over the United, uh, all over Illinois, we're using liquor code to do some enforcement. Uh, to keep regular to obey regulations and rules and, and and what you're saying there on the you know McLean County Health Department and others didn't really have some of that enforcement teeth I think that's one of the main arguments I mean that's the core of one of the main arguments I'm hearing critics on the other side go well hold on a second it, it should be them and they don't have that enforcement because the executive order either didn't pertain or the law said you can enforce after this point and that point hasn't hit um, it, and and yeah, I don't know how to. I don't know what the right answer is, and you know, I'm, I'm not making an argument here, but it it is one of those. It, it's a tough situation where you say, at what line, you know, is that executive order legit, not enforceable, not you know, and and where do you step in? And and I I hear people that, look, there's struggles on all sides of it, so you're you're in a tough spot trying to to figure the path forward, right? But I I, I hear people when they say, well, hold on a second, what's the law? I'll operate on the law. Let's go by the law. And it feels like it's changing um, mm -hmm. based on the well, moment. And, I think, I think that's fair, Jeremy, the, the way you bring that up. And, and we were, we were uh, trying to be as soft touch as we possibly could. I mean, the one, uh, the one restaurant that we find uh, got a, a couple of letters from us asking us, asking them to obey the state mandate. Uh, uh, a warning letter saying that we were going to take action. Um, and they pretty much said, no, we're, we're staying open and that's that. Um, so that was an individual case. Going forward, you know, the state in their after action should probably come up with some kind of um, scenario or plan that deals with this if it happens again. And it, Hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> Hopefully uh, we're done you know, here. My medical, uh, my medical friends say, happens every hundred years. Every hundred mm -hmm. years, there's a, a pandemic, and we're right on target. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about 
going forward. Um, hopefully things are warming up here a little bit. Um, fingers crossed. I mean, warm, it's above 20, right? So we're happy. Right. Uh, hopefully March and April will bring the same kind of reduction in cases that we had before increased flexibility to, to be outside. Um, by the way, outdoor dining in uptown, big, big fan of that personally. So, um, to whatever role you played in helping continue to facilitate that, that's great. What else do well, you think you know, should that, be done going forward? Uh, that's one of the consequences that's coming out of this. But we think that's going to be a permanent feature going forward because it was so popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so what do you think, um, what do you think should be done then as we look towards spring and summer? Um, what kind of action should the town be looking to take to try to help out with this? Well, again, I think doing more of what we're doing currently. Uh, I, I do have a COVID task force that's made up of a broad population in the town of Normal. I've got uh, small business, big business, uh, bankers, realtors, uh, uh, ministers, uh, restaurant people. I'm just trying to think all of them. Uh, uh, just a whole medical community is involved. And we have discussions about what, what we think we should be doing. And, and that's not what law should we write and what should we enforce. It's more about what should we do as a community. And so, you know, we, we developed a campaign for masking, the importance of masking. We're doing that right now. Uh, I got my first uh, first jab of COVID vaccine a couple of days ago, and you know my communications people and and we're using it or pushing that out as much. Get vaccinated if you can. And there are a lot of people that are trying right now. It's very frustrating, I know, but I think that and and showing some discipline and not relaxing until we know we're really out of this is is what we've got to do, and it's probably going to be not this spring. It's probably going to be. If you're optimistic, it's going to be June, July. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question on COVID. Uh, I I feel like the majority of people are genuinely trying to work through this and trying to balance all these considerations. Um, there are some who are seem to be politically motivated and try to make a bigger deal out of things to try to make a political point. Um, how How do you feel like the people you interact with break down? Is that like, you know, 70, 30? Is it like, um, do you feel like most people you interact with are trying to do, are genuinely trying to do the best thing instead of playing those games? I'd say 80, 20. Yeah, you're right. Uh, most people are trying to do the right thing. You know, uh, early on when we were getting people masked up, you'd always see people that weren't, weren't wearing them. You know, I had a couple of tense incidences in my store early on, but Go, in, go into a store now or into a restaurant. You don't ever see people without masks anymore. People are, that's become part of their, you know, their COVID culture that they, they realize they've got to do that and they're willing to do it. Mm-hmm. It seems to be working. And, you know, if, if you're reading about this, one of the uh, side benefits of that is there's hardly been any seasonal flu this year. Um, and I've talked, I haven't had a cold this year and I've talked to a lot of people that haven't had a cold because we're a little more rigid about how we protect ourselves. Yeah. Well, I'll say it's definitely a change I've had where I totally used to go to work sick sometimes because I felt like, you know, oh, well, I, you know, I can, I can take a hot shower and some medicine and power through. And I can, I know, I don't want people to think that I'm, 
lazy and I want to like be there for my people and I got a busy calendar. I don't want to inconvenience and reschedule all this stuff. And so I just went ahead and worked through it and was, you know, coughing and sneezing around and I will not be doing that anymore. That is definitely a change in, in my behavior going forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I think that the degree that anybody would hold that against someone, I think that's really decreased too as well. Now, now people see that as considerate, I, I hope in general. You know, and I think you're going to see that going forward. That could be one of the changes coming out of COVID, that when we're in flu season, uh, you know, if your immune system's compromised or you're just you're weak in that, you're probably going to wear a mask during flu season because mm-hmm. you've learned that it works. Uh, you know, and you see it, you see pictures of people in Asia and Europe 10 years ago where it's like, why, why are they wearing masks? <laughs> now we know. <laughs> Yeah. When I, whenever I sneeze, my kid looks at me and goes, COVID. So that, that's changed. It's like tight. It's COVID. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, we're getting we're getting way late on our time here. Um, if if listeners want to find out uh, more about you or uh, reach out, ask questions, donate, volunteer, how, how do they reach you? How do they interact with your campaign? Um, there is, um, uh, I'm on Facebook, Mayor Chris Coos. Uh, I'm on my personal page if you want to see what I'm cooking. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, Elect Chris Coos, the website, all the information is there. And so, you know, I'm saying, I'm hoping people find my time as a mayor has been valuable to the community and, and we'll see that going forward. But at the end of the day, please vote. You know, this is a frustrating thing for people in municipal government. Uh, we're the, we're the uh, form of government that touches your life every day. Every day we, we touch your life. And we have the lowest voter turnout, state, local, and federal. Local's always by far the lowest. Mm-hmm. So please, please vote. And, you know, I talked to the leadership in McLean County about this yesterday. It's um, get active in your community, too. We need citizens to be involved in our community. We have ad hoc committees. We have planning commission, things like that. Get involved. Um, we, we need people, local people, or we need people locally to, to be involved in, in how our government works. They'll have a better understanding of what we're trying to do, and they'll help their community. Yeah. Well, and the last mayoral election was razor thin, right? 11 votes. So Yes, it was. Um, Every vote counts. And, um, that's not, if that's ever, I don't think that's ever an excuse. My vote doesn't really count, but if there ever, it's not an excuse. It's with local elections because, uh, that's one or right. two votes can have a major impact on things. So, um, that's one of our big motivations of <laughs> getting, getting these candidates on, I just try to spread the word that this is happening, you know? So, yeah, hopefully, uh, people listen and take my advice and go vote. Yeah. April 6th is that election. Yep. So, all right. Um, and before we go, uh, I'm going to thank our sponsor, Little Beaver Brewery. Uh, Jeremy, you have anything to queue it up to say, or you want me to ramble for a little bit? Well, uh, uh, Mr. Mary, uh, uh, Tyson here says that the burgers are top five, uh, in his opinion, all time. I'm coming I, back to this. I, top I know. Five I keep coming thing. back to it. I know. I know. <laughs> top five burgers. 
I haven't been able to be over there yet and try it out. But man, I'm going. I'm having the burger. I'm saying Tyson sent me. Well, I feel um, like but, I'm overselling this a little bit. Now. I'm getting worried <laughs> you might not like this burger, but it's really, really good. <laughs> you can't oversell they, your sponsor. But they they have they have the outdoor patio. Uh, they have tons of beer, tons of one-off Wednesdays, uh, and some good food and beer pairing. So again, been out there. Go check them out. They do a good job and, and uh, very open, family friendly, and and uh, stuff for to go to. Yeah, and uh, and also you know people can be intimidated by craft beer because it is very different than what a lot of people are used to. Um, then the wait staff and the bartenders are very well trained to try to help find you something that's interesting for you to get. So like they have everything from a German style Kolsch, which is, you know, it's, it's close to your like light beer, like your Budweiser type thing you'd have, um, all the way to some very adventurous things, like things that taste like syrup. I had one the last time I went there that tasted just like a cinnamon ball. Like it was very spicy and hot. So, um, don't be intimidated with that either. They can talk you through and give you some little samples. And I assure you, you'll find something you like. And, nothing uh, nothing uh, better than an icy cold coach on a hot day. Well, thanks a lot for coming, Chris. I like talking to you. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having me.